Please bow your hearts together with me in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you so much that you would save us. That you would take us who are hostile towards you and our flesh and make us your own. And may we never forget that. Lord, may we never forget what you have done for us, the great cost at which you did it. Lord, as we interact with each other, as we come to worship you, as we go home to our families, may the work that you have accomplished through Jesus, the grace that you have shown us, be ever in front of us. Thank you, and amen. As a pastor, I, I get to do just some pretty great things. I, I just love my job. Um, I, I don't know that, that you guys get to hear that enough, that we as pastors of Westchester are just so grateful to be here with you, to be part of this fellowship. We're so grateful to be able to work with each other. We're, we're even grateful to, to work with Dave. Um, he's just been such a blessing to us. Um, it, is, it is so great to be a pastor. Um, and one of the great things we get to do is weddings. We get to walk with a couple through premarital counseling, teaching them about what God has to say about marriage, about applying godly principles to marriage. And then we get to, we get like the best seat in the house at their wedding. Like we we're just right there. We get to see the couple. You guys just get to look at the back of their heads, but we get to be face to face with them during the wedding. And it's a really special thing. And there's, there's one part of, of the service in particular that, that I just have a really unique view, and that's the vows. And when I do the vows, I see right in front of me this young couple who just with, with blind optimism in their eyes think it's only going to get better from here. And they, they, they're saying these words for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for in good times and in bad, and they're just like, but man, those bad times are just going to be so few and far between because it's just, it's just Disney from here on out. Like they just have, I mean, it's just foolish. It's, it's stupid how much optimism they have. No, I'm, I'm kidding a little, but obviously they are just at like the, the pinnacle right at that moment. And then beyond them, I see the congregation. And in the congregation are people who have been married 30, 40, 50 years. And sometimes in the front row is a single grandparent who has buried a spouse after 50, 60 years of marriage. And when I say those words and they repeat after me in sickness and in health and rich and poor and good times and in bad, those people have a very different view of those words. Because very few, I don't, I don't know of any couples that, that I've been a part of their wedding, including my own wedding, where when those words were uttered, they knew what they would really mean. And those who have been married 30, 40, 50 years, they know 
that when they say in sickness and in health, it can include words like cancer and terminal and open heart. And when good times and in bad are said, they know that those mean long discussions and tough disagreements to overcome. Things that happen in parenting. Sometimes it's the loss of a child. But those couples that have been married 30, 40, 50 years and have done marriage well also know that leaning into those vows brings about a blessing. And they know there's going to be times for this young couple on stage where they're not going to know what to do next, but they're going to have to trust in this. They're going to have to trust the Lord. They're going to have to stay committed to in good times and in bad to face the trouble in order to get to the blessing. And in churches, we have this thing where we feel like, man, like we're a bunch of people, we love the Lord, and so this should be pretty easy, and sometimes it's pretty difficult. And Paul starts with this message in, in Philippians 4.1, Therefore, listen to the affection he has for this church. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the instruction that, that Paul goes into the next section of the letter, tying it together. And his love for the church, he goes statements to them about who they are and what they should be doing. And they are citizens of heaven who need to be pressing on towards all things Jesus, towards knowing him and his suffering, attaining his resurrection. And that that knowing Jesus is greater than everything else. And he gives us instruction, stand firm. So the instruction is, as citizens of heaven who are pressing on towards all things Jesus, stand firm in all trials, especially the surprising ones. As citizens of heaven, press on and stand firm. And some of these trials, as we, as we look around, just in Philippians and the trials that he talks about, he talks about persecution and oppression. Paul's writing this letter from prison. He talks about the trial of personal selfishness and what that can do to a person and a body of believers. He talks about dealing appropriately with bad teaching. He talks about the allure of worldly goods and worldly success. All that is before this passage. He's going to be talking about the anxiety and fear of physical pain and physical insecurity and not knowing what's coming next. And all of these issues before and after this passage, he's saying, stand firm in the Lord when all these things come, not if, but when. And these things are a little bit expected but then he gets into one more thing, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, and that's standing firm in something a bit more surprising, and that's disunity and tension within the body of Christ. He loves this church. This, these instructions are just dripping with affection. And right after saying stand firm, he goes into an issue in their church. And what happens when the struggle you face appears to come from within the body of Christ. 
when we follow Jesus, when we take up our cross, commit ourselves to loving God and loving people, there are certain challenges we anticipate from the outside. When we read Jesus' instructions to love your enemies, when we read Paul's reminder that the, that the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, we don't expect that enemy or that reminder to be necessary. We don't expect that enemy to come from within the body of Christ. We don't expect the reminder that the battle is not against flesh and blood to be necessary because of tension with another believer much less within our own local church. But it happens. And when it happens, the wounds feel deeper, last longer, and tend to hurt a bit more. So Paul is saying, stand firm in the Lord. Again, in all these trials, especially the surprising ones, let's read the next couple verses. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyk to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. As we talk about this passage, we're going to be talking about what was going on in Philippi. And then we're also, in the second half of the message, we're going to turn and look at what could be happening with us. So we're going to look back and we're going to look now. So in looking back, first we look at the Philippian problem. The Philippian problem, as we look at this, we don't really know a lot of details other than these two ladies weren't getting along. And there had been really fruitful ministry in their past, but now there's just tension. And as we look at that, and as we look at disunity, we need to realize this is sad. There is a sadness to this. This is a known thing to Paul from prison. Paul sitting in jail, and he knows Yodia and Syntyche are not getting along. These women who have labored side by side, not only with each other, but with Paul. They were part of his active church planting ministry. For them to have a difference that's so well known and so significant that Paul feels the need to address it in this letter to the entire body is sad. There's been so much talk in Philippians thus far, and there will be more of joy and rejoicing that this just... It just feels out of place. And whether you know someone who is currently in a tense relationship with another believer, or you have one, or there's been one in the past that may not be quite resolved, it is natural and right to grieve that, to be sad about it. When God's people get to the point of needing a mediator in their relationship, it's a sad thing. Sin works its way in. Anger and bitterness and pride work their way in. And it's sad. The other thing we need, to, while acknowledging this is sad, we also need to acknowledge this is not, this is not necessarily hypocrisy. So many times we are quick to call things hypocrisy. The moment a believer sins, we're like, oh, what a hypocrite. 
It's like our favorite dismissal. It's like the church has been doing cancel culture for so much longer than our culture, but we just call it hypocrisy. This isn't necessarily hypocrisy. For a believer to, to sin just means that they're not in heaven yet. Certainly tension in the church can be brought through hypocrisy, but it's more likely a sign than a result. It's not a result of hypocrisy, but it's a sign that we aren't perfect yet. Yes, we've been sanctified, but we are also being sanctified. We are being made holy, which means we're not there yet. It's a sign that we need discipleship. We need to grow in what it is to be selfless in a church. We need to grow in what it is to view others as more important than ourselves. We need to grow in what it is to forgive. We need to grow in what it is to love like Jesus loved. Not just the manner in which he loved, that he laid himself down, but the timing in which he loved, that he did it while we were still sinners. We need to disciple each other in this, and we need Scripture to guide the way. It's a sign that while the work of Christ has been finished, it's still being realized that we're not there yet. There's an already, we've been saved, we've been made holy, and we're not yet there. It takes a while to realize the finished work of Christ. So it's not necessarily hypocrisy. And it's possible that this was not even a clear biblical issue. Paul had no problem in other letters naming the exact issue, whether it was divorce, adultery, believers suing each other, not enough grace, too much law. He, he had no problem naming it. And he had no problem naming heresy and the, and the perpetrators thereof. He had no problem doing that. But here... He only lists the names and says, I entreat them to each other. I entreat you to, to agree in the Lord. This could have been a philosophical difference. It, there could have been an, an either incidental or intentional offense perpetrated by one another. It's possible that this was the beginnings of a church split over what color to put in the new church expansion, what color carpet to have. A lot of archaeologists suggest that that was most likely it. It is important and it deserves attention. But, but it's not necessarily like a clear issue of one person wrong and the other person right. And there's so many times when we have tension that that's exactly what we want to try and do. We, we just grab every Bible verse that could possibly support our opinion while conveniently ignoring some others. We prop ourselves up, justify ourselves to a point where it seems like our position can be inerrant. Paul doesn't go there at all. He just says, I just want you guys to agree in the Lord. Just work this out. Agree in the Lord. And then Paul, in these verses, we find a solution that Paul has. 
So there's the Philippian problem, and here's the solution. The first, he appealed that they would meet their disagreement with grace and love and forgiveness. That they would meet their disagreement with the sovereignty of God and the power of God. And there's also a subtle hint in here for them to be reminded what Paul has written previously in his letter about Christ's actions and mindset from Philippians 2. About in Philippians 1, that as long as the name of Christ is being preached, there's rejoicing to be had. And in their relationship and in their theology, he points to their past ministry that these two women had co-labored for the gospel. And based on how Paul describes his partners in the gospel, whether it's through the book of Acts, through his other letters, it's safe to say that their ministry alongside Paul had a, was a bit more involved than just a potluck, as important as those are. There comes times, and sometimes frequently, where we need to see the needs of the gospel as much greater than our own. And in Paul saying, like, we were co-laborers in Christ together, <coughs> he's pointing to the blessings that they saw, the, the, the amazing things they saw in ministry, saying, looking back, and in his appeal to, to agreeing in the Lord, there's this there's this, the mind wanders to what could be on the other side of us agreeing in the Lord. What other ministry could lie ahead of us? What other blessings could there be out there? And if we don't agree in the Lord, we're going to miss these blessings. If we don't fight for this unity within our church, he's involving the whole church there. That, that you would, you're going to miss out on blessings by not pursuing this. Fruitful ministry is more worthy than my pride. And fruitful ministry is worthy of personal humility. Their division was impacting the local church. And the best thing for their ministry and for each other and their city was for them to sit down and work it out. And finally, to realize the big deal. Again, this is a subtle passage. He goes, they, they labored side by side with me together in the gospel with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He assigns to them the honor that God gives them. He, this, is a, this is another reminder that you guys are citizens of heaven. Euodia and Syntyche, you're citizens of heaven. Your names are in the book of life. And this isn't just a figure it out because you're going to be spending all eternity together and it's going to get real long if you're not agreeing by then. Instead, it's an urge to assign honor to one another. He's saying, Iodia, Syntyche is a co-heir with Christ. Syntyche, Iodia is a co-heir with Christ. Like it, it should be your, your two's honor to work this out together. So there's a brief overview of the Philippian problem and the solution. The problem is, is, is somehow tied up in personal pride, their inability to agree in the Lord. Their solution is found in these things. So let's move now to our liabilities. And in our liabilities, I'm going to give two fairly specific things and two fairly general things. But we're going to start with the specific. Dave actually... We, 
We didn't talk about my outline before, but he prayed about both of these things. So if you were paying attention earlier, you can just write your notes in ahead because I know you are all diligently taking notes as good people would. The first liability is the election. These are liabilities. These are things that could disunify us. There are people in this room who are completely convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that if Joe Biden wins, it's the end of America. And there are people in this room convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that if Donald Trump wins, it's the end of America. And this is one of those other like rare like perks of being a pastor. I get to talk to both of you. And I get to hear all of your scriptural reasoning on both sides. And it's just the most enlightening thing. We need to be careful not to allow a political figure or figures or political philosophy to be a rock of stumbling within our church. There is one rock of stumbling, and his name is Jesus Christ. We need to have, as citizens of heaven, and people who are historically minded and wise, we need to realize our nation, and, the, and more importantly, the church that is present in the United States of America has been under 45 different presidents, but only one king. All right? We've had 45 presidents, and we've had and will have forevermore one king, and his name is Jesus. I hope it'll be in by next week. It's supposed to come this week. I've ordered several copies David Platt, of David Platt's book. Um, it, it's seven questions uh, we should be asking as we get ready to vote. We're not going to do a voter guide that we've done before. Those are typically like very slanted uh, in what they represent towards the, the candidate that the voter guide wants you to consider. So instead, we're, we're just going to put this out. And it's seven questions every, every Christian should ask as they get ready to vote. It's things to pray about, things to consider as we, as we look at what's coming up for our country. So we need to be careful to not let the election divide us. Because the church will last a lot longer than this country. As great as this country has been, as great as I hope it will continue to be, the church will outlive this country. We've had 45 presidents and one king. The second issue, and this is a bit more hot button, is that of COVID-19. We are citizens of heaven. So we need to treat this as citizens of heaven. We need to not stoop ourselves to human worry, to selfishness, to conspiracies. I was sitting down with a group of pastors and we just kind of started talking and Boy, we've heard some weird things. Uh, and we, are, we just need to be above this. And as we look at the pandemic again through the history perspective, we need to realize these happen about every hundred years. And then as the human race, we, we get through it and we go back. And so we need to let go of the worry. I want to talk specifically about the issue of masks. 
We have present in our church two extremes and a whole bunch of people who are in the middle to one degree or the next. On one extreme, we have people who will only go places where everyone wears a mask because out of concern for their own health or the health of someone they're close with, a family member, a child, a grandchild, a spouse, a parent whom they are helping and walking with, they can't afford to be exposed because this virus either seems to be really not bad at all or deadly. I have a a friend who's a pastor in our church who this week will be burying a 51-year-old man. Him and his wife both had COVID-19. She had zero symptoms. He died. And so we have people who feel like I can't go anywhere without a mask to either protect myself or someone I love very, very much. And we have people who, for varying reasons, will do everything in their power to never wear a mask at all. And I'm not, if you want to debate the science on whether a a mask is effective or whether it's dangerous to wear one for a long period of time, I just, just talk to your dentist or your surgeon. They know a lot more about it than I do. But we have both of these groups in our church And we've heard the elders, the pastors, the regathering team, we've heard people from both ends say, I'm not coming to church until, and then they just say completely opposite things. And I just want to put this out there, that at both ends, you could hold either view and act lovingly towards the body of Christ, or you could hold either view and sin towards the body of Christ. In how you act, and how you talk about the people you disagree with. You could either be acting lovingly or sinfully. And I want to encourage all of us, instead of lowering the bar for what it means to be part of a church, to gather together with the saints, let's raise the bar on what we're willing to do to do so. And here's, I'm just going to put my cards out on the table. I think the virus is real. I don't think it's part of a political ploy that will go away in November. If it is, there's something really to be afraid of because of how it's affected all the other countries in the world and what someone's apparently willing to do to get someone elected. That should really terrify us. I'm not living in fear of the virus. Personally, I feel fairly confident in my health and immune system. I've I've studied the facts as closely as, as I'm able to not being a doctor, as being someone who's really bad at biology in school. Um, I feel pretty safe myself. I don't like wearing masks. Uh, They're uncomfortable. I eat a lot of onions, and they mess up the only hair on my head, okay? Um, But I deeply deeply love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love my neighbor as myself. And it's a pretty low bar of sacrifice for me to wear a mask. So I just do it. I'm going to do it to make the person I'll never see again at the grocery store feel more comfortable. I'm going to do it so families who feel like they can't come to church unless people are wearing a mask and come to church because they need to be here just as much as I do. And so I'm going to love them. 
And as we talk about masks, we, there's a couple things we need to break down. One is the stronger, weaker brother issue. And, and, and there's some application here. But as you do it, I want you to, to be hesitant to just declare yourself, whatever side you're on, be hesitant to declare yourself the stronger brother and build yourself up. Because you can have more freedom and less maturity. Or you can have more confidence in one thing and, and less faith in another. And the other thing we really need to check at the door is our selfishness. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And some people go around in the circles, oh, we, we can't evaluate our motives because all of our motives are sinful all the time. You know just the base of, let's just do a baseline analysis of our motive. Whatever our stance is, do a baseline analysis. Is there selfishness in it? And if there is selfishness in it, deal with that accordingly. Treat it as the sin that it is and try and get rid of it. As citizens of heaven, let us not waste our pandemic that God has given us, but let us seek to learn what God has taught us. Let us seek to learn what he is teaching us. Let us seek to take advantage of the ministry opportunities he's putting at our doorstep, and let's not miss those because we disagree about stuff. So there's our two specific. Now, let's look at the two generic ones. The first one is our generations. This is a multi-generational church. We are trying to be an intergenerational church. And in a day and an age where generational titles can be thrown around as insults like boomer and millennial, we need to know and honor one another. There are serious cultural divides between our generations, and Westchester could very easily develop into three or four different sub-congregations within our church based on generational divides. There's serious work that goes into being unified. And subtle things like generations and generationalism can create can either be a tremendous asset or a great source of division. And just as one thing, a couple things as we look at generations, let's, let's just realize our theology, what we have as theology, what we have as biblical understanding was not born of a single generation, but it just builds and builds and builds and builds. Augustine and Calvin and Luther were, were not peers. Spurgeon was not their peer. John Piper, I mean, it feels like he could have been alive back then, but he wasn't. And likewise, our church just has this rich history of theology and biblical teaching and fruitful ministry, and let's lean into that in the same way that Iodia and Syntyche need to look back at their ministry and all that they'd seen God do together and realize how much more could be ahead of them. Let's look at what could be ahead and let's pursue future fruit in the gospel. And finally, mission. And this is a ministry silo, minefield. My ministry is better than your ministry. And we value one ministry over the other, where it's a, whether it's ABF, nursery, education of children and youth, outreach, missions. And there are biblical mandates for every single one of them. And let's honor each other's ministry, and let's not fall into the trap of, I do more than the rest. I think of Mary and Martha 
where Martha said, Jesus, would you tell Mary to come and help me? I'm doing all the work here. And he says, Mary's chosen the better portion. She's chosen to just sit with me. Maybe your ministry is allowing others to do that. And maybe you're just being lazy and you need to get off your butt and do something. But let's not let the work of the ministry divide us. So let's look at our solution. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and go through these as quick as I can. We need to follow Jesus. Paul gives us nod back to Philippians 2. We need to follow Jesus to know Him, to press on to know Him better from Philippians 3, to look more closely at His love for you and have the same love for each other. Remember that we follow a Savior who washes feet, and so we should love like Him. We are not above Him. We need to follow His example. And so then we also need to go back a page to Philippians 2. What does Paul tell them about church life? He says, if you've experienced this great love and comfort from the Lord, then complete my joy by being the same mind, same love. Then be unified. And how do we be unified? We get rid of our selfishness and our greed and our pride. We value others as more significant than ourselves. We look to their interests, not our own. We have the mind of Christ who emptied himself, taking on the nature of a servant and dying in humility and, and being raised to glory. We need to have a consistent obediency. A, a consistent obediency? We need to have a consistent obedience to take our personal sins seriously and do everything without crumble, grumbling or complaining. And finally, we need to get to biblical definitions. And by biblical definitions, I'm going to look at two things here. God's glory and each other. That everything is for God's glory. And then each other. Look at who each other are. Look at whoever it is you're disagreeing with within a church. I want you to start looking at that person. And maybe you even need to write yourself a note. Put in their name, apostrophe S, make it possessive. Their name is in the book of life. Rejoice in the salvation that's been given to them. Never forget that. There's so much that could divide us. And there's so much fruit in being unified. One of the great saints of our church, Bob McGraw. Sharon just told me he turns 92 tomorrow. Twenty-some years ago, Westchester was going through a bit of a worship war. Trying to figure out what do we do with music. Let's make it more contemporary, let's not. And there was a lot of tension, and there was a congregational meeting in the midst of this tension, and Bob McGraw stood up. He said, I don't like the new music. It's not my preference. I don't really like it at all. I don't get it. But I see what's happening, and I like that, and I want to be a part of it. What a great model. I'm going to love my fellow believers, and I don't get it. There's some different culture things going on here, some different preferences, but I just want to be a part of what God's doing. God does so much with a unified church. Let's not take that for granted. Let's, let's lay ourselves down. Let's love each other well. And let's rejoice that our names are in the book of life together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today.
Thank you for this opportunity and thank you that you gave your life for us, that we can know you, that we can walk with you, and that we can walk with each other. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. Help us to honor you. Lord, we pray that you would continue to do great work and allow us to have that seat to see your glory made known. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.